Good morning. It's great to see you. Welcome to an episode of Home Improvement. That's <laughs> what I think every time I hear the music of that bumper. Um, if you're new to our church, welcome. Really glad you're here. Uh, my name is Jay, and I'm a part of the team. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for uh, being in the theater or, or hanging out with us online. Um, <clears throat> let me just get you caught up. For the last couple of weeks, we've been in this teaching series called Work Hard, Rest Easy. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, deep dove into the idea of our work, jobs, vocation, and a biblical vision for vocation and why we do what we do. And then last Sunday, we talked about rest and specifically Sabbath rest and specifically the biblical vision for working from rest and not working necessarily for rest. And today, we're going to uh, explore what is, on the surface at least, probably for most of us in this room, the most uncomfortable part of this series. We're going to talk about money and about finances. And maybe you're new to church or maybe you're skeptical about religion. And the moment you just heard me say those words, there's a part of you that's like, man, I knew it. I knew it. My neighbor told me to come to this church. He said it was awesome. They're good people. They're not weird. And this dude is going to ask me for my money. I get that. I get that tension. So uh, here's what I would say. Just suspend your presuppositions for about 30 minutes and let's see where, where it goes. And maybe at the end of this 30 minutes, you'll be like, yeah, exactly. I knew it. This guy's terrible. and This church is horrible. And you'll never come back. And if that is you, I'm sorry. <laughs> but just hang with me. Okay. Um, my first proper job was in high school. I was a junior in high school. And I got a job working at a luggage store in Mountain View. And uh, this is in the late 1990s, and I, I'm, I was trying to recall exactly. I'm pretty sure this is accurate. I think I made $6 an hour, which at the time, I was like, dude, I'm rich. <laughs> I remember my first paycheck. I distinctly remember this. My first paycheck, whatever it was, I don't remember how much it was. It might have been like $97 or something. I don't know. I took it to Bank of America where I banked. I cashed the check. I didn't deposit it into my account. I cashed it, and I asked the teller specifically. I said, hey, can you give me the, like, the crispest, newest $20 bills you can find? And so they did. Like The teller gave me these crisp, brand spanking new $20 bills. And then right after that, I got together with my high school friends. Like There was five or six of us total, and I took them. I still remember this on the corner of um, Hollenbeck and Homestead Road. It's still there. Uh, there was a Starbucks right next to a Taco Bell. And I went to Homestead High School at the time. So I met my friends there and I treated them to all you can eat Taco Bell. And then I bought them all Frappuccinos at Starbucks. And I basically blew that entire first paycheck. <laughs> but it was awesome because it was the first time in my life that I felt rich. Now, I grew up without much, single mom, um, we lived sort of paycheck to paycheck, so I felt independent and free, and I felt wealthy, you know? I felt like, man, this is like, it's on, like saying those words, it's on me, you guys, was like so awesome, and then at the end of that whole escapade, I had nothing, I was poor again, but uh, then I just went back to work on Monday and made more money, so I share that story with you because I still, I still very much um, 
remember in a, in a visceral bodily way how I felt when I had that money, when I had that much money for the first time in my life. It's just something changed, right? This is the power that money can have, good and bad. It has the power to affect us, to affect our perspective, um, affect our priorities, affect how we feel about ourselves and the world. There's obviously a lot of debate about money. Um, some people say it's the root of everything awful in the world. Some people say that it's the very thing that makes the world go round. Some people love it. Some people hate it. But regardless of how we feel about it, the undeniable truth is that money is a daily reality in our lives. And today, I want to ask the question, what if our money is also doing something to us? Or what if our relationship to money isn't just about what money can do for us, but specifically, and maybe more importantly, what if the thing we need to consider is what money is doing to form us? Not just what it can do for us, but how money is forming us. And that's what I want to talk about today. Let me, um, just a full disclosure, listen, I don't like talking about money. I don't like it. It's not comfortable it's not something I, you know, it's not like a casual conversation I like to have with friends. Um, but here's the thing, I know that I'm not alone. Uh, according to some recent data, about 40% of all couples that are cohabitating, both married or not, 40% of all cohabitating couples, they literally live together, share a life together, 40% in America don't know what their partner makes, 40%. More than 50% of Americans admit that they are embarrassed to talk about money, either because they think they have too much or they think they have too little or something in between. Um, according to one recent na nationwide survey, Americans say that they would rather talk about marriage problems, religion, death, addiction, race, sex, and politics than they would about money. We don't like talking about money. I get it, that's me. Here's the issue though. Jesus, in the Bible, seems to say a lot about money. Uh, money is the topic of more than 25% of Jesus' parables, more than 25%. One out of every 10 verses in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every 10 verses, 288 verses in total, are about money or resources, the resources at your disposal. Throughout the Bible, in total, more than 2,300 verses are about money and about resources. Why? Because it's not the money itself that matters, it's who we are becoming because of the things in life that influence and shape us most. And what the scriptures seem to make clear is that what we have, our resources, and specifically our, our finances, our financial resources, have a formative influence on our lives. So let me read one text to you uh, from Luke chapter 12. This is a story about Jesus and his interaction with a person and then a story, a parable that he tells. So this is Jesus walking around the country, the Galilean countryside and he's teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God and then this happens. Someone in the crowd said to him, Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, I love that, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you two? 
So essentially, this man is like, hey, my brother doesn't want to split the family inheritance with me. Jesus, can you tell him to split it with me? And Jesus is like, what? Why am I the judge or the arbiter of this weird family dispute? But then Jesus takes this opportunity to excavate beneath the surface. And he says this. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in, a, in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, the rich man thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops because now he's got so much, right? And then he said, oh, this is, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? There's a lot going on in this story, and we'll get to some of it here in a moment, but I just want to make clear, this is the key point here. Verse 15, Jesus says, be on your guard against not money. Jesus doesn't say be on your guard against stuff. He doesn't say be on your guard against wealth or even riches. He says, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. This is not about primarily, first and foremost, what we have, but rather it's about the desire for more, regardless of what you have. The, Jesus implores his people, he implores us through this text to guard against greed. And what is greed, right? In, there's a whole slew of things we could talk for weeks and weeks about greed. But let me just try to summarize for you in short. In short, greed is the myth that more is always better and that there's never enough. Next week, Steve will talk more about this as he explores the idea of contentment. But greed, just in short, is the myth, the lie, that more is always better and that there is never enough. The first century Greek philosopher Plutarch put it this way, greed never rests from the acquiring of more. Greed never rests from the acquiring of more. This is greed. It's hunger, it's, it's insatiable appetite for more because it believes that there is never enough. And then the story ends this way. Jesus says these words, Luke 12, 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Notice Jesus does not end his sentence by saying, this is how it's gonna be for anybody who stores up things for themselves. That's not what he says. He doesn't say saving for a rainy day, as an example, or having a plan for your financial future is evil. That's not what he's saying. The key phrase is, this is how it's gonna be for anybody who focuses all their attention on storing up for themselves without one added caveat, and it's to be rich toward God. To be rich toward God. 
So what does that mean? What does it mean to be rich toward God? There's, again, we could spend weeks exploring that phrase, but let me try to um, summarize it for you in a, in a visual. If being rich in the world asks the question, what do I have and what can I get? Again, believing the myth that there is always more and more is always better and that I never have enough. Being rich in the world asks the question, okay, what do I have and what more can I get? That's the primary driver of life. But a life that is rich toward God asks a different question. It asks the question, what have I been given and what can I give? What have I been given and what can I give? A life that is rich toward God, we'll talk more about this in a moment, it understands that nothing we have is actually, truly ours. And I know that is an offensive thing to say in culture today. The followers of Jesus understand this, that our very next breath is not our own, that it's all a gift. So to be rich toward God asks that question. What have I been given? And again, this includes my partnership with God and the opportunities he's given me and my hard work and skill and effort. Absolutely. What I'm not saying is you do nothing and everything's just been handed to you. No, in this room, looking around, I know how hard so many of you work, how much you have sacrificed to be where you are. But the opportunities to be where you are, the opportunity to partner with God effortfully to achieve whatever it is you have achieved, it's all a gift. One theologian, Daryl Bach, puts it this way, that possessions are a stewardship, not to be hoarded selfishly, but to be used to benefit those around us. Jesus is not saying possessions are bad, but that the selfish pursuit of them is pointless. Those who climb over people and ignore them in the pursuit of possessions will come up empty on the day God sorts out our lives. Another story from Jesus on money. This is Matthew chapter six. We actually explored this story a few months ago in our sort of long, slow, and steady journey through the gospel of Matthew. Let me read it to you again, Matthew six. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, let me make this clear. Jesus does not say you cannot have both God and money. He does not say you cannot earn or make or save money and also serve God. That's not what he says. He says you cannot serve both God and money. That word serve is the verb form of the Greek word doulos, from which we get the English word doula, actually, 
But in the ancient first century world, uh, the word doulos in the Greek was most often translated servant or slave. In fact, every verse you read in the New Testament where it talks about slaves, it is this word. So what Jesus is saying is, you cannot be enslaved to money and be a servant of God at the same time. You cannot do both. You can have money. You can make money. You can earn money. You can even save money. You ought to steward your money for the glory of God and the good of all, absolutely. But you cannot serve money. You cannot be subservient to the endless pursuit of having more and at the same time serve God. It is not possible. Here's the thing. Sometimes, some of us in the room who are living in you know, financial comfort, maybe, um, we, we might be feeling a little bit like, okay, dude, this is a little weird. Are you just like talking to me? Should I feel guilty? Here's the thing. Enslavement to money isn't just a risk for those who have plenty. Enslavement to money is a high risk for all of us, no matter where you are on the financial spectrum. Whether you are living in financial hardship or financial uncertainty or financial comfort and stability, being a slave to money is a constant temptation whether you have nothing or everything or something in between. Let me show you. Financial hardship, financial uncertainty, and financial stability and comfort. Now, this is a very big generalization, but my hope is that this encompasses um, basically everyone in the room. My guess is that all of us in the room, those watching in the theater or online, my guess is that right away you see these categories and you know where you are, somewhere on, these, on, on this spectrum, right? We all belong somewhere here. And sometimes we go back and forth. So first, um, financial hardship. The enslaving lie that money tells us for when we are in financial hardship, is that money can save me. I grew up this way, you guys. I grew up with very little. I grew up in seasons of my life where we had almost basically nothing. And as I got older and older, especially as I got to middle school and high school, I began to believe in my mind, if we just had money, all would be well. Money can save me. That's what I believed in financial hardship. Sometimes to this very day, even though I don't live in financial hardship, because it's the story of my family of origin, sometimes I feel myself tempted toward this lie, even today. It's like, oh, I don't know, it's a little tenuous. If I just had money, money can save me. But here's the liberating truth. Only God can save. Money cannot save you. Money will not save you. It can pay the bills, for sure. It can get you through in a temporary way, some immediate hardships. But the salvation you long for, true, deep, meaningful rescue of your soul, the redemption of your story, money will not get you there. So an intentional practice for those of us in financial hardship, share your need without shame with God and his people. Couple of thoughts. Isaiah 43, what does God say? I am the Lord, and apart from me, 
There is no savior. Acts 4, verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Money cannot save you. Only God can save. So practically, practically, what does that mean? If you are here and you are living under financial hardship, but you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, you don't know how you're going to feed your family, you don't know this medical bill that is coming due, it like, how is this gonna work? Literally, it's about money or life. If you are in that sort of situation, again, share your need without shame with God in prayer and his people, the church, your church. Um, I'll show you a slide here. We have a care ministry at our church. Some of you know this, most of you don't. But I, just, I want you to know we have a care ministry here. Ben Pierce is our care pastor and he's got a very robust team and, um, and we have all sorts of systems in place like, this is not a promise of anything. What I'm not saying is we're gonna write you a check tomorrow. What I am saying is we will do our absolute best to come alongside you in your time of need. So if you are living in financial hardship right now, let us know. Email us. I'm serious about this, you guys. And I know sometimes there's shame attached. And there is no shame. There's no shame. This is what it means to be a church family. I mean, think about your literal family. Think about like a loved one or a best friend. If they had real need and you found out that they never told you and struggled through that need alone, you would be hurt, wouldn't you? It's like, why didn't you tell me? Okay, I'm imploring you as a brother in Jesus. If you're a part of our church family, tell us. Like, don't put us in a position where we look at you. Like, why didn't you tell us? It's not that we can solve the problem, but we don't want you to trek through the dark valleys of life alone. Just email us, let us know. Come talk to one of our pastors after the service. We wanna come alongside you. Because money will not save you. God can save you, but God will express his provision for you often through his people. So let us know. Many of us, I think, in this room, especially just thinking about our economic climate right now, I, I would assume many of us here would find ourselves in that middle category, financial uncertainty. And the enslaving lie in seasons and times of financial uncertainty is that money offers certainty. I mean, you know intellectually, those of you who are followers of Jesus, you know in your mind that's not true, but how often do you find yourself in that direction? Like when things are really tenuous and uncertain and you are unsure, just ask yourself the question, what is the ratio of you going to the Lord in prayer and seeking his wisdom and guidance and counsel in your life versus you sitting in front of the spreadsheet, figuring out the math and the projections and all that? And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. That's a responsible thing to do. Plan financially for the future, absolutely. But... You do that sometimes, I do that sometimes to the, to the point of believing that my plan for my financial future will offer me certainty. But those of you who have lived long seasons of life, I think you would affirm this, money doesn't offer certainty. 
it doesn't offer certainty. The liberating truth is that only God is certain. His love for you, his desire to provide not necessarily what you want, but what you need. So what is an intentional practice when it comes to those of us living in financial uncertainty? Live and give thoughtfully, consistently, and selflessly. Let me explain. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, if the verse ended there, it would sound manipulative. It would sound a little bit like health and wealth gospel, right? If you give a lot of money to God or the church, God will give you lots of money in return. If you begin to tithe your money every single month, then in three years, you will be a millionaire. It can sound that way. Let me clarify for you. Theologically, that is so far from what we believe. Our best understanding of scripture is the life of following Jesus is an invitation to take up a cross and to die to yourself. This might actually mean literal, physical, financial hardship if that is the life God has called you to. Or it might mean absolute financial abundance, but abundance not for you, for God's glory and the good of all. Or it might mean something in between. Paul continues though. He doesn't just say, if you give a lot, you'll get a lot. That's not what he said. He continues. He says this. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. More on that in a moment. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Before I come back to the deciding in your heart to give, let me just talk about these last few words. God will bless you abundantly. Again, that could be misinterpreted. See, if I give a lot, I'll get a lot. If I give and tithe, then I'll be a millionaire, whatever, right? But he continues, he will bless you abundantly so that what? In all things, at all times, having not everything you want, but having what you need, you will abound in every good work. For this is the most meaningful life you can live. I mean, two weeks ago when we started the series, we talked about vocation and we talked about this very thing. That we wanna do work with our lives that means something rather than just has a lot of things. When Paul says that each of us should give what we have decided in our heart to give, first, the word heart is the Greek word cardia. And in the ancient world, first century world, the heart, the cardia, was not understood simply as the seat of our emotions. They didn't have a con concept of the human brain. So whenever um, Jewish and Greek and Roman writers wrote about the cardia or the heart, they didn't mean that's the place where you feel things. They meant that's the place where you feel things and think things and prioritize things and have motivations and intentions. It's everything. There's a thoughtfulness to the word. 
And then when he says, give what you have decided in your heart to give, that word decided is the Greek word from which we get the English word priorities. It it essentially means to choose or to prefer or to prioritize. So what Paul is saying is not give recklessly. Paul is not saying, you know what, unless unless God tells you to, Paul is not saying like sell everything and give it all. Like that's not what he's saying. Especially in seasons of financial uncertainty, what Paul is inviting us to, what the scriptures are inviting us to, is to thoughtfully, prayerfully engage the process. Lord, things are uncertain. I'm not sure how it's gonna go. So what are you asking of me? And commit to that. Commit to that. Whatever that is. Because giving thoughtfully Whatever it is you have decided, prioritized in your heart and in your mind to give, that is the path to freedom from the lie that money offers you certainty. Give just a little bit of away for something bigger than yourself and find yourself experiencing freedom that you would never find if you enslave yourself to the desire to hoard and to accumulate and to build bigger barns. Um, some of us, this is really hard because we've never really done the work of like, how do I manage? How do I even figure this out? Like, I, yeah, I wanna do this. I wanna commit to, to giving whatever it is God is putting on my heart to give and to giving it fairly consistently and selflessly, but I don't know how. I just like live, I just charge stuff on my Amex or whatever and then I just pay it off every month. Like, I don't know how to do this. Um, uh, my friend Bill Bradley and Scott Pering, my friends um, Bill and Scott, who are, um, they, they're professionals in this area and passionate followers of Jesus, they are offering um, a lab on financial wisdom in a few weeks, May 7th, or maybe it's this week. Is that this coming week? Something like that. I don't know. You guys all have calendars. Sunday. Sunday. Okay, next Sunday. May 7th, um, right after the second service, 1230 to 2.30 here at Westgate. Um, our campus here at Saratoga. So if you're interested, just scan that QR code or go to our website and, um, and it'll be, this will be really practical. It'll actually, they're professionals in this area and they've helped hundreds and thousands of people over the years order their finances and figure out how to manage their money in a way that can help you make sense of it all. Uh, in a way that you can be freed from the tension that so many of us feel. Um, finally, those of us Um, There are some of us, few of us probably, but some of us in the room who live with financial stability and comfort. Let me just say this quickly. Um, First of all, if you've been blessed with much, you should not feel guilty, but you should feel responsible. If you have been blessed with much, do not feel guilty. It is God's gift to you, but you should feel responsible. You are responsible now to steward God's tremendous gift in your life for his glory and for the good of all. The enslaving lie when we have much is this is all mine. That's a lie. And listen, I know this is offensive. This is the most offensive sermon I've preached maybe ever here. I know I'm offending you, but I'm just trying to be as faithful to the text as possible. None of that is yours. It is not yours. The truth is everything is God's. 
So the intentional practice, live and give selflessly, sacrificially, maybe even radically. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich, not those who are rich, those who want to get rich, fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You know people like this, yes? The desire for wealth has ruined them, right? For the love of money, not money, not resources, not wealth, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You know, I have friends who God has blessed with tremendous wealth. And some of these friends are some of the most vibrant, faithful followers of Jesus I know. They live such incredibly meaningful lives. And if you were to ask them why, not a single one of them would tell you a single thing about the stuff they own or the vacations they take. They would tell you about their love for God and his people and how money has become a pathway to expressing that love. Psalm 24, verse one, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Tim Keller writes that if you have money, power, and status today, it is due to the century and place in which you were born, to your talents and capacities and health, none of which you earned. In short, all your resources are in the end the gift of God. Before we wrap up here, I hope some of this was helpful to you as you as an individual or with your family or whoever began assessing what money might be doing to form you, not just what money is doing for you. But I do, I do want to take a moment and just have a family conversation. So if you're new to our church and um, you're like, oh, I don't really like, I'm just checking things out, this is just a peek. It's a window into um, our church family. But many of you here are a part of our church family. You call Westgate home. And uh, what I want to do is I want to give you just a bit of an update here on our financial situation at Westgate. And I know what most of you are thinking. Like, you're like, okay, here it comes. I knew this was happening. Jay's gonna say, we're struggling. We're, we need lots of money. That's actually not what I'm gonna say. We're, God is providing, and we're healthy, and we're doing great. Um, but I wanna give you uh, just a, a bit of an update because I never do this. Let me um, share one thing to you. And I think these are some things that are just interesting to me. They tell a story. Um, from exactly one year ago, April of 2022, to April now of April 2023, um, our attendance, so like in person, the number of people who come to our church every Sunday has increased fairly dramatically. We're, we're, we have 50% more people coming to our three congregations every Sunday now than we did a year ago. So 50% more, and praise God for that. That number is actually a lot higher than that online. I just don't know how to count online attendance. Like, I don't know if there's one of you or 40 of you in your living room watching. So I don't know. It's hard for me. But just in person, there's 50% more. That is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more people, new people showing up to our church. But our giving has remained flat. 
So like giving has not gone up 50%. It's literally the same. Now, in some ways, I think this is a really good thing. Because I think a part of what it means is that many of the people coming are not like old faithful Christians who, you know, know what it means to give and they're just transferring churches because that church is like not their vibe anymore and I like Westgate. I think it's encouraging because I think what it means is that a lot of people who are coming don't have, they're not transferring churches. They're just coming because like I don't really know much about the church thing, but I think there's something meaningful here. And we celebrate that. That's exactly the way we want God to grow our church. Now, if you transfer it here from another church, I'm not like, whatever, right? I'm glad you're here. Uh, but I'm, but you know, like I think you would agree with me. We want to see new people come and encounter Jesus. The other thing is, I would be remiss if I didn't say this has been a transition year. For those of you who've been around Westgate for a while, like for 20 years, my pastor Steve Clifford led this church, and then now it's me. And um, Steve is the best leader I know. He'll be teaching next Sunday. He's teaching at South Hills today. He's the best leader I know like far and away, and I know a lot of leaders. And I'm not him. And so that puts us in a tenuous situation, you know? He's like a seasoned veteran leader. Dude, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I was just like, I don't know. We have a wonderful team, but I'm like a young, I'm, in real life, I'm a very middle-aged man, but in church leadership age, I'm young, <laughs> you know? And typically in transition years, giving actually goes down between 25 and 30%. That's the national average. We have not gone down. So that is a huge encouragement. I mean, on a personal level, I take that as a huge encouragement that you all are like, maybe this guy isn't a total mess and maybe um, uh, God has good things for us. So. But I also think a part of what this means is that for some of us who call Westgate home, I think a part of what this also means is that some of us are all in with our time and our energy, but maybe we're not yet all in financially. And listen, I'm not here to coerce you. Let me just give you some data. We have about 800 recurring giving units at our church. So that's 800 individuals or families who give semi-regularly to our church, we celebrate that. And that sounds like a lot. But by most estimates, we think that we have more than 4,000 people who show up to Westgate and are part of our church on any given month. So that's about 20%. And I celebrate that again because I think it means there are a lot of people here who are new to church. Another data point that our team informed me about that I thought was interesting, almost half of the recurring gifts here are $2,000 a year or less. Now, for many of us, $2,000 a year is incredibly sacrificial. If that is you, man, I applaud you and God sees your faithfulness. For some of us, $2,000 is not sacrificial at all. And I'm not saying that to guilt you or coerce you. My guess is that you have good reason for that. I share all of this simply to ask you to do one thing, not for me, but for um, the future of this church family. If you call our church your home, would you take some time this week and ask this question? Is my financial worship giving participation in my church family an expression of real faithfulness to God? 
Am I giving what God is asking me to give to further the mission of this church family? For some of you, that answer is going to be yes. For a few of you, that answer might be, you're giving too. I'm not asking you to give that much. Give less. My guess is that for some of us, maybe many of us, the answer might be no. You're not participating faithfully. No one's going to know that. I'm not saying this to guilt you. I'm simply asking you to ask the question. Our church, our church family will do as much, as fast as God provides financially through you. That's just the reality of our situation. If you're a part of our church, what you also know is that we don't build bigger barns and storehouses and hoard it for ourselves. If you're new to our church, you need to know that on average for the last 10 years, about 25% of every dollar that comes in here leaves outside our walls every single year. That comes out to millions of dollars every year. And we're committed to that. We're gonna continue to be committed to that. Um, I'm gonna ask Mark and the team to come back up. We're gonna sing and worship and respond here together in a moment. Uh, I just wanna tell you a couple stories um, before we sing and respond. Uh, if anything I've ever said in the last couple of weeks or the last couple of years or whatever has been helpful to you, I want to tell you the story of generosity that has changed my life um, because anything that's been helpful to you is connected to these stories. Way back, probably like, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago or something, I was, uh, I was an undergrad student in Bible college, and Bible college is expensive. It's, you know, it's private education. And um, I remember one semester, I was a youth ministry intern, and one semester, um, I was working a part-time job and going to school full-time, and I was trying to save, I was being responsible financially, but I just, I couldn't do it. Um, I was helping my mom with rent, and I hadn't shared this with anybody, and I was just stressing out, because I couldn't, I had paid my tuition, but I couldn't afford books. My um, financial aid uh, didn't cover the books, and I didn't have the money. So I remember I was stressing out and I, I was calling friends in Bible college saying, hey, can I borrow your book so I can go to, um, you know, like the, the wherever you, you do photocopies, I forget what it's called, and uh, just make photocopies of the book. Can I do that? I'll pay you a little bit. I mean, I was so stressed because I couldn't buy books. And one day, I was a youth ministry intern, we're at youth group, and I um, gave a sermon to a bunch of high school students and it was really bad. It wasn't a very good sermon. I'm not saying that to be like hum, humble brag. It was legitimately not, I was not a good preacher back then. Um, it was probably heretical. <laughs> I didn't even know it. And then afterwards, I'm all down. She's like, well, there goes another terrible sermon that ruined teenagers. And then I, um, I go to put my Bible in my backpack and I open my backpack and it was gonna cost me a couple hundred bucks to buy books and I, I didn't have that. I open my backpack and I see a small envelope and I open the envelope and it's an anonymous letter from someone in our church saying, Jay, I believe in you. I think God is doing something in and through you. I don't want, know where this is gonna go, but I just felt compelled in prayer to bless you. And there were $200 bills in there. And I bought books. And several years later, I'm a youth pastor and I'm a seminary student. I am over my head in financial aid debt, so I can't take on any more loans. I'm going to Fuller Seminary to get my master's degree in theology. 
And I owe $9,883 in tuition that I did not have. Jenny and I were newly married. We had no savings. We're living paycheck to paycheck. We're trying to figure things out. And I was, I was pretty much set on putting um, seminary on hold because I couldn't pay the tuition. And then one day I get an email from a woman in our church who had no idea this was my situation. She says, can I meet with you? We meet, she walks in, she says, my mother passed away recently, left us an inheritance, and I have felt compelled as I've prayed and asked God, what should I do with this money? I have felt compelled that God is asking, and it was a lot of money, God is asking me to give it all away. And so I've been asking God, who and where should I give it away? And as I've been making this list, as I pray to the Lord, Jay, your name came up. And as your name came up, this number came up and she pulls out a check for $10,000, which pays my seminary tuition and helps me buy books. And 15 years later, here we are. If anything I've ever done or said has been even remotely helpful to you, it is in part because of the generosity of others who said yes to God's call to live rich toward God and not in the world. That's the sort of story you could write with your life if you would surrender it all to him, whatever he's asking of you. No one else in this room is gonna know. There's no guilt, there's no coercion. If you don't give a penny to our church moving forward, I'm still grateful you're here. I'm simply asking, would you ask the Lord by his spirit to reveal to you the path to freedom and liberation from the lies that culture tells you about salvation and certainty and security, about what is and is not yours, what is and is not ours. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for all you've given us. We pray that by your spirit, you would form us into a sort of people who would live into the reality that none of this is ours. It's all yours. Give us the courage to say yes to whatever it is you're asking us to. We love you and we thank you. Pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Let's all stand and sing together.